Well, last night, I don't know about you, but I thought we'd be inside. And I was trying not to have a grumpy attitude about it. And I'm so grateful uh, when we woke up this morning to see the sunshine and this nice breeze gathering here and a reminder of God's goodness to us and at the same time, really our absolute dependence on him because no man controls the weather, uh, only God. On this week of Independence Day, we do well to remind ourselves that being an independent nation does not mean independence from God. As much as we love our freedoms, we cannot free ourselves from the sovereign Lord of the universe. He has been active throughout human history, including our own, and he has not abdicated his throne, whatever human beings might imagine about him and themselves. The Psalms, we're returning this morning, Psalm 9, if you have your Bibles with you, Psalm 9. The Psalms are spirit-inspired exaltations in God, songs that openly declare and rejoice over who God is and what he's done. They are not just imaginative poetry expressing worked-up emotion over a fictional deity who's done mythical deeds. They point us rather to historical, verifiable reasons for exuberant praise to the true and living God of our salvation. They also don't present a rose-colored version of life, but they're tightly connected to clear and present dangers and to gut-churning soul struggles that genuine believers face in this world. They tie solid theology to the practical realities that are common to our humanity. And depending how sheltered you and I might be, some of the calamities that the Psalms address are, are well beyond what maybe any of us have experienced. And yet they, they give us insight into what it would be like, things that might be unthinkable to us and yet are not disconnected from the rule of God. So Psalm 9, our scripture passage for today, well represents these truths. It's a good example of what the Psalms bring to us. And it's well suited for this week of our history as a nation. Lest we forget who made us and to whom we must give account as a nation and as individuals who make it up. Will you follow with me as I read Psalm 9? I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. 
a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall not return or shall return to Sheol and all nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And once again, he ends with Selah, which is stop and think about that. As we look at this psalm, we see that it starts in verses 1 and 2 with a personal commitment to praising God. It moves then to recounting God's historical wars against the wicked in verses 3 through 6. And then the psalmist talks about God's forever kingdom of justice and righteousness and safety in verses 7 through 12. And then it becomes very personal in verses 13 to 14. The psalmist gives a personal prayer for divine rescue. And then finally ends with God's certain retribution against the wicked and all nations who forget God in verses 15 through 20. So let's trace that through, beginning with this personal commitment to praising God. If you look at those first two verses, you'll see that there are five verbs, five things that, that the psalmist commits to related to praise. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. When he says, I'll give thanks, what he's doing is he's saying publicly, confessing publicly what's true about God, what's true about Yahweh with his whole heart. And then he starts numbering all of his miraculous, his, his deeds that cause great wonder. And then that leads to being uh, being glad, and he uses a word for, for making merry and rejoicing, like, like the level of partying, the, the kind of happy mirth that you would expect at a celebration. And then beyond that, exulting as we would exult in triumph when there's a great victory. And then finally ending with singing praise, making music to the Lord, both vocal music and instrumental music, giving God praise. He starts with Yahweh, the covenant name. That's what you see there in the text, the capital L, all caps, L-O-R-D. That literally means he is. When God said to Moses, I am that I am, then Moses would say about God, he is. Okay? He's the God 
who is, the uncreated one. And this is the name that he's made known to us and entered into relationship with us. And then the psalmist ends his praise with this term, O Most High. Starts with Yahweh, ends with O Most High, which is usually used in context where pagan deities compete for our worship. You see it often in the book of Daniel. Here's Daniel and the empire of Babylon uh, serving in the court of the king. And, and, and very few people there uh, would believe in the true God, and yet Daniel was to live for the true God in the context of these many pagan deities. You go to any great city or any foreign land where, where other gods prevail, and you start to feel how ridiculous it might seem to be actually worshiping the Lord, but he is the most high, greater than any other so-called deity of any culture, however advanced. This goes against the grain of our own pluralistic society or, or a multiculturalism that would lead us to say, well, really all gods are the same, all idols are the same, all religions are the same. It really doesn't matter. No, this is the most high God. And God's identity as the covenant God Yahweh and his superiority as the most high God over every idol that human society might worship gives us good reason to exult in him as his people. It's easy to let the threats and the problems of our lives, both individually and in our nation, suck the wind out of our praise to God and rob him of the honor that belongs to him. But for the psalmist, he says, I'm going to determine, it's going to be my, my determined intention to give you praise. I will give thanks. I will recount. I will be glad. I will exult. I will sing praise. And we've got to do the same kind of thing. That kind of, of determination. I'm going to give God praise, even in the midst of a world that worships many other idols. There's something it does for you to bring the true God to mind and to keep focusing on him and giving him praise in the midst of conflict of deities and difficulties of circumstances. So it does us well to ask ourselves, how often do we find ourselves praising God from the heart? He said, with my whole heart. And, and the question is, when do you actually do this? You know, do you have a time when you intentionally focus on God and on praising Him? And as you go through the day, do you keep reminding yourselves to give God praise? One of the biggest impacts of men like, like um, the Nunez's, Marco Nunez, um, being with him is how often he would just break out with praise to God. Thank you, God. God is good. Same with J.D. Crowley and other missionaries that I've been with, just as we're together, just starts talking to God, starts praising God, and it's a good practice. And then how often do you remind yourself of who God is and all he's done? You know, I think we tend to remind ourselves about all the problems. Over and over again, all that we fear, all that we would fret over. And we kind of leave God out of the picture. Or we, we somehow imagine that because we have these problems, that somehow God's not doing his job. And it's very clear from this psalm, as we go through it, that in the midst of the troubles, 
this God is who he is and deserves our praise. And what follows gives historical proof of his sovereign rule over all the world in every era of history. So we see in verses 3 through 6, God's historical wars on wicked nations. Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne and giving righteous judgment. You've rebuked the nations. You've made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Now these words show that the psalmist has experienced war firsthand. He has personally seen the fall of the enemies of God. Most people think that David wrote this. Remember, David was a warrior king. David knew what it was to face the enemy face to face. David knew the battlefield conditions. David knew fear and then pressing courage in the face of that fear. And David saw God bring him to the throne in ways that at the start seemed completely impossible. And it's some time since we went through David's life, but as you think back on it, he never should have made it to the throne. And he never should have survived all his enemies, but he did. He recognizes that it was God who took those enemies down. It was personal for God. They stumble and perish, David says, before your presence. Literally before your face. I don't know if you've thought about it before, but if you belong to God, the the battles that you face against the enemies of God are personal to God. He is there with you in the battle. The battle is the Lord's. God is righteous and just in his judgments. He causes nations to rise and fall. It's the stuff that history is made of. He lifts up kings and takes them down. He, he sees that evil is judged, that the wicked are destroyed, even though for a season they may wield great power and even seem invincible and untouchable. But you see, sin is not just wrong. Sin is inherently harmful. It harms the sinner and those around him. It has built-in consequences, bringing death. And, and history underscores this truth over and over again. Remember, there are vast civilizations all over the earth destroyed at the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah to this day lie buried in the depths of the Dead Sea, destroyed by fire and burning sulfur. Egypt, in Moses' day, was the mightiest nation on the earth. It was broken by the plagues and is now a minor player on the world stage. The Canaanite nations, after over 400 years of waiting for their sins to be full, as God told Abraham, the land eventually vomited them out. The land was full of bloodshed, in particular child sacrifice for the idols of immorality. And Israel drove them out. If David is indeed the author of the psalm, as many think, all these events had already happened. They were a recorded history. He was well acquainted with them. But they were a sample of what was yet to come. The Philistines, major enemies of Israel during the days of the judges and the early monarchy, ended up ceasing to exist as a people by the time Babylon came to power. Assyria, 
And you recall that Nineveh was a great city in the days of Jonah, Assyria, a major empire. Nineveh eventually became the capital of that city. Nineveh, when it was destroyed finally, was so obliterated that it was thought to be a mythical city until its ruins were discovered in more recent centuries. Now Assyria is the stuff of museums. Babylon, their gates and temples fill museums today. But the power of Iraq is nothing like that of ancient Babylon. They never recovered after they were overrun by Persia the night of the handwriting on the wall. And then Medo-Persia, modern-day Iran, does not hold a candle to the power that Persia once wielded. Greece conquered Persia. Now it's a vacation destination for beaches and archaeology. It certainly is no world power like it was in the days of Alexander the Great. Its artifacts fill museums, as do the artifacts of Rome. Rome and Italy wield little significant political or military power today, yet once they ruled the world for a thousand years and then plunged and fell in the Western world, fell asleep in the dark ages. Following that came the so-called Holy Roman Empire. It's gone. And then later, much later, the Nazi Third Reich. It was supposed to last for a thousand years. It lasted little more than a decade. There's the British monarchy and the Commonwealth and the Empire. Remember, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, it certainly does now. The American colonies were born at a time when Britain had great power. We never should have been able to break free. England is still significant and a friend of our country, but it's not the dominant world power that it was in the past. The French monarchy ended at the guillotine. Napoleon's reign at Waterloo, or then fast forward to the Khmer Rouge. The killing fields left scars on every family and town in Cambodia, but Pol Pot and his gang are dead. These are only a handful of the empires and movements and peoples who have come and gone. Many we don't even know about. Paul essentially says the same thing to the city fathers of Athens. Centuries past their prime, but still significant in the world. He says in Acts 17, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why does he do this? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. We tend, like the civilizations of the past, to deify our culture and our times. But the ravages of time and the fallout of wars and plagues and migrations move countries and nations around like sands on the seashore. God is like the ocean that moves them. The passing of nations and of persons we know 
teaches us that life is transient, like a candle in the wind. What we need is something and someone who is eternal and secure. And that person is Yahweh. He is the most high God whose kingdom will never fail. So when what you've always thought is secure is suddenly gone or changes, what can you do to turn your heart toward this unchanging God? What are you doing in your daily and weekly cadence of life to draw close to the Lord? If you don't do that, you're going to be freaked out by all the stuff that is swirling around you and changing. But listen, what's changing, the things that are, that are happening, the rebellions, the problems, the deaths, the tragedies, this is nothing new. This is not a modern problem. This is what it's like to live in this world. And this is why we need God. And so the psalmist then turns his mind to God's forever kingdom of justice and righteousness and safety. Listen to his description, beginning of verse 7. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. In contrast to these empires that have perished, God's reign is forever and is never unjust. He established his throne for justice. He judges the entire world and all its people with righteousness. He faithfully conforms to what is right and uprightness to what is straight. It lines up with the truth and with reality and with genuine goodness. He is a stronghold, a, a, refer, a refuge for the oppressed in a time of trouble. Think about a, a high place in the mountains with a, with, that's, that's built up where you can hide uh, far from the enemy. His revealed character, his name, gives us every reason to rely on him because he's trustworthy. He doesn't forsake those who trust him. He will not forsake you if you will trust him. He avenges their blood. Sometimes the righteous are slaughtered by the unrighteous. Those that are innocent die. But he avenges their blood, and, and it's plural, actually, bloods. It refers to human blood shed by violence. We're told that the Canaanites filled their land with bloods. And later, so did the Israelites, and they took up the idolatry of the Canaanites, and that's why both civilizations had to be judged. God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. It might seem that the vulnerable and those who have no ally and those that are the weakest of society, including the unborn, that, that somehow no one's listening to their cry. Well, God is, and God is going to make it right. And for that reason, we sing his praises. However wrong things may be, however powerful those who are wicked may seem to be, 
We will sing his praise because we know their day is coming. Tell his deeds among all the peoples of the world. Why all the peoples of the world? Why not just Israel? Why not just Hampton Park? Why not just this little part of Greenville? Why all the world? Because nobody anywhere in all the world, in all of history, is getting away with anything. Neither nations nor the people in them that make them up are a law to themselves. Now, they can pretend God doesn't exist. They can pretend that they have godlike, deified freedom to do whatever they want with no consequences, that righteousness and justice are fictions. But it's all a fantasy and a charade, and it's going to do them no good. It actually is doing them harm because God still rules, and for that reason, he is still a safe place for those who trust in him. So every day we need to be thinking about how am I living out the truth that God is my ultimate safe place. It's easy for me to to substitute other things and, and people that distract me from him or make me feel secure instead of him. And one of the ways that God helps us put our our hope and trust where it really belongs is to strip away those things in which we put hope, things that are not nearly so substantial as the God of heaven and earth. And then we see the psalmist move to personal prayer for divine rescue in verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O Lord, lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises. And in the gates of the daughter of Zion, may I rejoice in your salvation. Now, what this tells us is that the battles aren't done for the psalmist. The need for Yahweh to deliver us remains throughout our earthly journey until God brings the consummation of all things. So prayer is a vital necessity to me and to you. It's necessary. It's strategic. Look at how he describes himself. He says, I'm afflicted. The sufferings and pressures are part of life here. And part of those come from those who hate me. He's hated. Uh, you know, one of the most painful things we endure is, is the, the broken relationships and the, the, the condescension of people and umbrellas. I'm not actually using this, right? Why don't we just move it out of the way because the sun's not too bad and the wind is great. Yeah. That was not just for kids. <laughs> All right. He's afflicted, he's hated, and he's dying. He's mortal. You know, you look across our congregation, we have youth to age. And as we age, one of the things that we becomes more and more a weight for us is more and more of our loved ones, more and more of our friends, young and old, are suddenly taken from this earth. And we know that even if we survive for many, many, many years, that eventually our day is coming. We are mortal. We're, we're dying. We need a God who will lift us up even from the gates of death. We need a God who will be gracious, show us favor when we're in affliction. We need a God who sees us when others reject us. We need a God who rescues us even from the jaws of death. And when we have that kind of God, then we have every reason to recount God's praises. 
to rejoice in his salvation. He says in the gates. That was where city business was taken care of. That's the public square. That's where the main activities of the city happen, where commerce and governing and all go on. In other words, God is not just for your private closet. God is for the streets. And God is for the the public square. People publicly ought to hear you praise God. Now, if you've been tracking along, you're saying, well, wait a minute. God's a God of justice. He will be just and in punishing what's sinful and what's wicked, how can he also be a safe place if you and I are sinners by birth and by choice? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that, that we have done much that deserves the judgment of God. So how can we hope to be safe in him? Well, his name is a God who loves to the nth degree, who sent his son Jesus Christ, God the Son, to bear the price, the punishment for our sins. If we would trust Him to do that for us, then we can be rescued from this justice. Because quite frankly, when you think about the warrior king, he is a terrifying figure in the universe. You know, it's one thing if you're on his side, But when you realize you're not, that you by nature are a rebel against him, then he's terrifying. He is not just some doting grandfather up there, nicey-nice with everybody. That's very clear from this text. So how is it that I can possibly be safe? Only because he is a God who has himself paid the price through Jesus to take care of my sin. If I would trust him to be that good for me. Genuine praise and joy rise from knowing God graciously sees you and lifts you up from the death you deserve. His attentiveness toward us motivates our prayers to him in a world of dangers. And he proves that by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. My question to you is, when do you pray? And why do you pray? And how can you ensure that the God you have in your mind is the God that the psalmist describes here? Finally, we see in our text God's certain retribution against the wicked and all nations who forget God. The nations, verse 15, have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their hands. And you've got this uh, word, hegeon, that apparently is a musical notation where the music's supposed to swell. So think about the orchestra as he gives these words, as he sings these words. You have the big crescendo. Think about it. Selah. God's judgments are not arbitrary and baseless. They are tightly connected to exactly what the nations deserve. Their own sinful ways become traps to them. That is ever the way sin works. It is so contrary to God's design and our good that engaging in sinful practices, whether I do it individually or as a group of people, naturally brings painful consequences. The fallout is not limited to a problem here and there. It actually brings us to the grave and reaches into eternity. 
Verse 17 says, The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. This is not just a wish. This is a future certainty. The wicked are those that are injurious and harmful. Living contrary to God's commands, even if you call it love, is inherently harmful to ourselves and those around us. It is the opposite of love. Sheol can refer to death in general. Sometimes it refers to the grave. And then it also refers to a place of suffering prior to the final judgment. Christ tells us about the rich man and Lazarus and talks about the rich man in Luke 16 being in torment and saying, I'm in anguish in this flame and refers to this place of of torment, of torture. When it and everyone in it is thrown into the lake of fire forever, the Sheol is temporary, eventually it goes into the lake of fire forever. Well, all the nations, not just the wicked, all the nations that practice wicked practices, every nation, every people, every community. The the Greek translation of this Hebrew word is the word we get ethnic from. So we'll say the ethnicities. It's more than city-states and nations and empires, but it's also tribes and peoples and subcultures and communities of people, people that forget God. It's not that God is not known. It's rather that he is known and then rejected then the knowledge may be limited, as it always is to some degree when finite people try to grasp the infinite being. But the question is, what am I doing with what has been revealed to me about God? To forget God is not just that he slipped from our mind or memory by accident. It is willful and it's intentional. We have our reasons for pushing God away. Generally, it's to make room for ourselves and what we want to do and be. Paul explains it in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, hold down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The vast population of the pre-flood civilization had ample testimony to God's existence, even though the scriptures were not yet written. The pre-flood lifespans were spectacularly long compared to our day. Adam lived 930 years. That means he died when Noah's dad was 56 years old. During those antediluvian days, Enoch preached the coming judgment of God and called people to repentance. He named his son Methuselah, which means when he dies, it shall come. Methuselah, by the grace of God, lived longer than any other human being on record, 969 years, and in the year he died, the worldwide flood came. After the flood, the population of the earth was reduced to eight people, Noah and his family. They all knew of the true and living God. 
that knowledge was still around in Canaan in the days of Abraham because King Melchizedek, who blessed Abraham and received tithes from him, was a priest of the Most High God. In those days, God told Abraham it would be 400 years before his descendants took the promised land of Canaan because the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. The horrible practices of Canaanite paganism arose in the face of the knowledge of the true God. Their fall and destruction was just. It was God bringing to bear the result of their sins. Nation after nation, people group after people group, have received the light of revelation from God. All of them the general revelation from the created universe and their own consciences and many of them exposed to the special oral and written revelation, communication from God. From the Garden of Eden onward, however, we see displayed human beings pushing God out of our thoughts to make room for our own wills and appetites with devastating impact on others. Other people, especially the vulnerable, pay the price when we are no longer serving God but deifying ourselves. Verse 18, for the needy shall not always be forgotten as they are now, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. When we dishonor God, we dishonor other people too. We cut them off from hope that someone will care enough to help them in their need. We may neglect such practical righteousness, but the Lord will not let the situation stand. He doesn't forget the needy, nor does he let the hope of the poor die, never to be satisfied. Where man fails, God prevails. So the psalmist ends with these words, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Arise. God's inactivity does not mean inability. He will arise swiftly and surely. His delay doesn't mean he doesn't care. He will rise up when it is time. He will keep the nations, man from prevailing, and he will judge the nations before his very face. We are well to remember the words, prepare to meet your God. That prospect should strike fear in our hearts, for no one is getting away with anything. All will answer to God who will have absolute power to bring justice down. And the words that the psalmist uses here speak of becoming an object of terror because of enduring a horrific experience. This devastation makes it abundantly clear that for all their boastful arrogance, these are but mortal men destined to die. Let the nations know they are but men. If you turn against God, you can't win. If you turn to God, you can't lose. This Tuesday, we celebrate the beginning of our nation, the day of the Declaration of Independence. Before that, we were a group of English colonies. And before that, we were newly arrived pilgrims searching for a new homeland. Other people groups lived in this vast land. The fact that we had a beginning should teach us that our nation is time-bound, as are all others. We are not forever. 
We are not self-created. We are answerable to the one who is forever, who lifts nations up and takes them down, and who judges us according to what we do with him, whether we bow to his perfect justice and righteousness or not. Our history to this day is checkered with mistakes and failures and sins because it's a nation made up of human beings. Along with myriad blessings and happy victories, we have much to thank God for. We have much to repent of. We need grace. For we have a date with destiny because we answer to the universal warrior king, Yahweh, the most high God. For that reason, let us have personal commitment to praising God. Let us remember God's historical wars against wicked nations and God's forever kingdom of justice, righteous, and safety. May we lift up personal prayer for God to rescue us in the midst of all of this, remembering that God will bring certain retribution against the wicked and all nations who forget God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, A nation is but a man writ large. It is easy for us to wring our hands about the swirl of things going on in our nation. You can't control that. What's going on in your own heart? And what is your relationship to this God? Is he your safe place? Or will he be your most terrifying enemy? God is the universal warrior king. Let's pray. God, you have been kind to us beyond all measure. You have forgiven our trespasses and sins. Despite our many failings, you have blessed us in myriad ways. God, we pray for ourselves and we pray for our countrymen that we would not forget who you are, that we would not push you out, for that is an impossible task. God, may we live the days you give us on this planet, in this nation, in a way that brings public praise to you for who you actually are, the God who is, the God who is the Most High, who brings judgment and justice to bear and is a stronghold for the oppressed. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.